In the middle of the night of one of the coldest winters in recent history, 19-year-old Romanian Jew David Stolier floated alone in the Black Sea, clinging to a piece of a ship that had sunk beneath him early that morning. Over the past day and now night, as he struggled to stay afloat and alive, he watched helplessly as 786 people, including his fiancée, went to their deaths in the open water. Many freezing, more drowning, and the rest killed instantly in the explosion that tore the ship apart. David was the single lone survivor of the ship called the Struma. David Stolier's saga represents the great risks and sheer courage of a major Zionist project before, during, and after World War II. The Struma was part of a Zionist effort to rescue as many Jews from Europe as possible in the face of Britain's refusal to allow Jewish immigration to Palestine. The Zionists had many successes and some tragedies, and ultimately saved only a small percentage of the Jews who were eventually murdered. But even one person, clinging to the last remains of life in the middle of the Black Sea, was significant. David's story exemplifies the extreme difficulty in getting Jews out of Europe and into Palestine. It was a key part of the Yeshu's response to the outbreak of the war, which occurred a few months after the British White Paper of 1939 slammed the door shut on Jewish immigration. The war put the Zionists in a difficult position. While they had to join the fight against Germany, they were also in a state of low-level conflict with the British because of the White Paper, and weren't exactly excited about helping them out. So what to do? David Ben-Gurion had a plan, and a catchy slogan. And if you've got a catchy slogan, you've got everything. I have a catchy slogan. Mine is, Welcome to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland, and a few days after that, Britain and France declared war on the Nazis. The Jews in Palestine now had a conundrum. The White Paper in May had opened up what Ben-Gurion called a Jewish rebellion against the British. The Irgun had already been about the business of attacking British institutions and the police, and there was a lot of bad blood going around Palestine. But to continue fighting the British would hurt the war effort by diverting precious resources and attention. Some in the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, wanted to keep fighting the British anyway and let the chips fall where they may. But Ben-Gurion saw a big risk in that, and he also saw some big opportunities. He believed that the Jews should both join the Allied war effort and continue working against the White Paper's restrictions. So he came up with one of his most famous slogans. We're going to fight Hitler as if the White Paper didn't exist, he declared, and we're going to fight the White Paper as if Hitler didn't exist. Told you it was catchy. His strategy had two big pieces. For the first part, about fighting Hitler, he wanted to form a Jewish fighting unit in the British Army, like the one he was a part of during World War I, the Zion Mule Corps that I talked about back in March. For the fighting the white paper part, he wanted to ramp up an effort that had begun in the mid-1930s. If the British are going to cap the number of Jews allowed to come into Palestine, well, we'll just bring in as many as we want anyway. Secretly. And so on top of everything else the Zionist movement had to deal with in the 1930s and the 1940s, they launched one of the largest clandestine rescue operations in history.
David Stolier was born in Kishniev, the city of the famous 1903 pogrom, which by the time he was born was a part of Romania. Starting in the late 1930s and continuing up through the beginning of the war, Romania got super anti-Semitic. They passed a lot of anti-Jewish laws that led to persecution and sometimes violent pogroms. David found himself thrown out of school for being Jewish, and then, in 1940, sent to a labor camp near Bucharest. Upon his release a year later, David's father secured him a passport and an expensive ticket on the ship called the Struma, which the revisionist Zionists had secured to take refugees to Palestine. To call it a seaworthy vessel would be generous. It was small, it was built in 1967 as a steamship, so only had a worn out engine installed. It was designed for 150 people, but when David and his fiancée showed up at the dock, some 800 people were waiting to board. The Struma and its desperate passengers set sail on December 12, 1941, but as soon as it left port, its engine failed. It had to be towed to Istanbul, and there it sat in the harbor. Turkey refused to take in the refugees, and the British said that because of the white paper of 1939, they wouldn't take them to Palestine either. So 800 people sat on a boat built for 150, with almost no food, little water, and nearly nothing in the way of sanitation, waiting their fate. These refugees weren't the only ones heading off to Palestine. The Haganah had been organizing these efforts for years now. The Haganah wasn't just a Jewish self-defense force in Palestine. It was also an underground railroad, bringing Jews from Europe and the Middle East to Palestine to escape persecution. Railroad's actually probably the wrong term. A better word would be sea lane, because the Haganah's vehicle of choice was a ship. Of course, the British had ships too, and so ensued a cat-and-mouse game between the Haganah and the British Navy, one side trying to make it to shore, the other trying to block them. Now, the Jewish agency, which was headed by Ben-Gurion, was officially against doing this because it would piss off the British and cause them to restrict Jewish immigration even further. And so this is where it's really helpful to have a clandestine organization like the Haganah. Ben-Gurion did a lot of wink-wink and pretending to be outraged when a bunch of Jews made it onto the beach. This clandestine operation, which continued all the way through the establishment of Israel in 1948, was called Aliyah Bet. It was like the Berlin airlift of Israel. Last week I talked about the division between the Haganah and the Irgun. The Irgun disagreed with the Haganah's policy of restraint towards Arab violence and split off. One side of the organization devoted itself to retaliating against the Arabs through acts of violence and even terrorism. But the Irgun also had this other purpose. In the early stage of Aliyah Bet, the 1930s, the Irgun and the Haganah were in alignment, and actually it was members of the Irgun, the revisionist Zionists under Jabotinsky, who were organizing this underground sea lane. Jabotinsky called this effort the national sport. Jews not being known for their athletic abilities, but top secret operations we actually do very well. And what we get from this is that despite their deep divisions, the Haganah under Ben-Gurion and the Irgun under Jabotinsky did sometimes cooperate on issues in which their ideologies were in alignment, such as rescuing Jews from Europe. So what the Haganah slash Irgun would do was charter a ship, preferably one so old and decrepit that it cost nothing and could barely float, load it up with as many Jews as possible, and send it out into the Mediterranean in the direction of Palestine. Sometimes the ship would just boldly roll into port in Haifa and the Haganah would race the passengers off to quickly melt away into the streets. Sometimes the ship would anchor far offshore, offload the Jews onto smaller speedboats and have them all sprint towards the coasts, hoping that most would make it through. 
Sometimes the Haganah would crash the floating rust bucket right onto an empty beach and unload everyone before the British showed up and arrested them. But sometimes the British would intercept the boats and arrest all the refugees for attempting to illegally enter Palestine. There was a large detention camp outside Haifa in Athlete, where thousands of Jews were sent before being loaded back onto ships and sent to British territories as far away as Mauritius in the Indian Ocean or the Caribbean to wait out the war. The British didn't send them back to Europe, but they didn't want them coming into Palestine either. Although what also happened is that sometimes the British would release the prisoners anyway. One such effort went terribly wrong. A little over a year before David Stolier set sail on the Struma, the Nazis organized the deportation of Palestine of several thousand Jews from Austria, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. This was before the Nazis decided on the final solution, so immigration was fine. Whatever got the Jews out of German-occupied territory worked. Adolf Eichmann oversaw that effort, and as part of it, three ships were sent off to Palestine. But just before reaching the port in Haifa, the British Navy intercepted them. The British government, still following the policy set forth in the White Paper of 1939, refused to allow the refugees in. Instead, they would be transferred to another ship, called the Patria, and sent off to Mauritius and Trinidad. The British saw this as setting an example that would dissuade more Jews from making the attempt to flee Europe for Palestine. But the Haganah also decided to use this situation to set an example. They sought to screw up the deportation of some 1,900 Jewish refugees so that the British would have no choice but to let them stay in Palestine. They organized a mission to sabotage the Patria by blowing up its engines so that it couldn't leave Haifa. But they miscalculated their timing and the size of the bomb. On November 25th, 1940, the bomb went off, but instead of just destroying the engine, it tore a huge hole in the hull. As refugees were being loaded onto the ship, the Patria flipped on its side and sank in just 15 minutes. No one is quite sure how many were rescued or how many were missing, but more than 200 bodies were recovered. They were buried in a special cemetery in Haifa. Most of those who survived the sinking were eventually allowed to stay in Palestine. It wasn't until 1957 that the Haganah operative who planted the bomb opened up about all this. But it was just a big mistake. It wasn't the intention of the Haganah to harm anyone to make a point. At the time, though, there was a big debate about whether sabotaging the deportation was justified or not. Some thought the risk had been worth it, since although a couple hundred people died, more than a thousand were allowed to stay. With so many Jews facing life or death in Europe, the argument went, even with the casualties, the risk was worth it. But others in the Haganah argued against it, since the refugees themselves had no idea what was happening, and therefore had no say in their own fate, precisely the opposite of the Zionist ideology. The British continued to get more aggressive about its naval blockade, intercepting ships and turning them away, or arresting all the Jewish refugees and sending them to detention camps elsewhere in the world. But the Jews kept trying to come anyway, like David Stolier. Back in the harbor of Istanbul, as 1941 turned into 1942, David Stoliar, his fiancée, and nearly 800 others sat in dire conditions, awaiting some change in their status. But the British and the Turks couldn't quite come to terms. The British wouldn't let the ship sail for Palestine, but the Turks wouldn't let them stay either. And their engines still didn't work. Finally fed up, the Turks boarded the Struma, 
fought off some resistance from the Jews, and on February 23rd, 1942, towed the ship back into the Black Sea. They abandoned it to float helplessly without any sort of provisions for the passengers. Now, what no one knew then was that Joseph Stalin had given orders for the Soviet Navy to sink any neutral ships in the Black Sea. A Soviet submarine passing just beneath the surface spotted the Struma, identified it as a neutral ship, and at dawn on February 24th, fired the torpedo that tore it apart. Most were killed instantly, but the rest floated in the Black Sea until dying of hypothermia, exposure, and drowning, including over a hundred children. David Stoliar managed to stay alive by hanging on to a door. He was soon joined by one other survivor, the Struma's first officer, and together they floated through the night. But within hours, the first officer died too, leaving David all alone in the Black Sea. Not until the following morning did he get rescued by local Turks. He was taken to shore, arrested, and thrown in prison for entering Turkey illegally. Two months later, the British gave him a visa to immigrate to Palestine. The Struma, of course, became an enduring symbol for the Yishuv, a disaster of singular horror that exemplified the utterly perilous state of the Jews in Europe and the Middle East. By this time, the Jewish community was beginning to gain awareness of the systematic mass murder that would become the Holocaust, and yet the British mandate remained stubbornly insistent on preventing the Jews' escape to Palestine. It was only a great peril that some Jews could be rescued at all, a terrible risk they nevertheless took because they had few other options. Even in Britain, the disaster was controversial. Some British government officials and members of parliament severely criticized the British colonial office for its obsessive adherence to the white paper. The Struma, they said, was a mark of shame for Great Britain. David Stolier was plagued with guilt for the rest of his life, carrying with him the one remaining photograph of his fiancée. By his own account, he only began speaking of his experience towards the end of his life. His first wife never even knew about any of this. After the war, he served in the Israeli army during the 1948 War of Independence, and decades later ended up living in Bend, Oregon, where he died in 2014 at the age of 91. The Aliyah Bet clandestine immigration operation continued up until Israel was established in 1948, bringing in tens of thousands of Jewish refugees. Don't worry, you've not heard the last of this. But Aliyah Bet was only one part of Ben-Gurion's program to fight the white paper as if Hitler didn't exist. He also wanted to fight Hitler as if the white paper didn't exist. And that meant joining up to fight with the British. And he wasn't the only one. Despite what was, by 1939, almost open warfare against the British in Palestine, the Irgun and Jabotinsky decided to suspend their resistance campaign as long as the war lasted. After a tumultuous decade of infighting, the Yeshu finally seemed to be united on this one thing. In 1940, all three of our Zionist big shots, Weizmann, Jabotinsky, and Ben-Gurion, headed off to America on separate trips. But they had the same basic mission. Get American Jews fired up about a Jewish fighting force to stand with Britain against the Nazis. Money would be nice, political support even better, and actual recruits best of all. This was a year and more before Pearl Harbor, so entering the war wasn't high on the priority list. But Jewish lives were at risk now, and Ben-Gurion wanted to know what contribution America's Jews are prepared to make for the life of their people. Spoiler alert, he'll be disappointed. 
I've not really talked about American Zionism at all in this podcast. It's a huge subject, and I wanted to keep the focus on Palestine. But like anything else, you had a wide spectrum of support for Zionism. Some Americans were all about it, others not at all. And there was a lot of infighting, just like with the Zionist movement in Palestine. Don't worry, one day I'll come back to this subject, but let's just say that Ben-Gurion was surprised to encounter a lot of resistance. In a very Ben-Gurion-like saga, he almost didn't even make it into the United States. He first survived a harrowing crossing through the Atlantic Ocean, which was plagued with German submarines. Upon arriving in New York, he self-righteously refused to tell the immigration officer the purpose of his mission. So they sent him over to Ellis Island until they could find someone to vouch for him. But it was Rosh Hashanah, and everyone was in synagogue. They finally tracked down a couple of prominent American Jewish leaders to interrupt their high holidays to come down to the immigration office and beg Ben-Gurion to admit to the government why he was here. He still refused, so they begged the immigration officer to just let him into the United States anyway. The officer finally relented, and Mr. Impossible Pants promptly walked into New York and gave a press conference to the Jewish media detailing the exact reasons why he came to the United States. You know those icebreaker games where you have to say which world leader you would win at your dinner party? Stuff like that. I always struggle with this because I want to say Ben-Gurion, but then it's stories like this that make me think he would be more trouble than he's worth. But anyway, Ben-Gurion spent the next several months running around the United States trying to drum up support for a Jewish army to fight Hitler and protect Palestine. But everywhere he went, he encountered resistance. He found, in his words, that the Jews of America are afraid. They were afraid that Zionism would diminish their American Jewish identity, and they were afraid that their American Jewish identity diminished them in the eyes of their fellow Americans. They were afraid of getting involved in the European war, and they were afraid of what would happen if Hitler won. They were averse to putting pressure on the British to allow more Jews into Palestine, and they were naively focused, Ben-Gurion thought, on half-baked ideas to solve the Arab-Jewish conflict. They still held on to the idea that the Arabs would come around to support a Jewish homeland a ship which Ben-Gurion, and probably anyone who listens to this podcast, realizes has long since passed. He wrapped up his disappointing tour of America in San Francisco, at the St. Francis Hotel on Union Square, where he probably did not ride up and down the glass elevators pushing all the buttons like I do when I go there. That's kind of an inside joke for my Bay Area listeners. But from his hotel room, he wrote that he could not deny the distressing feeling which American Jewry has awakened in me. I did not find an adequate awareness of the seriousness of this desperate and tragic hour in the history of Israel. I fear that American Zionists have not yet fully grasped the tremendous and weighty responsibility which history has imposed upon them in the present fateful hour. And then he went home. Jabotinsky was also in America drumming up support for a Jewish army, and you will not be surprised to learn that he and Ben-Gurion, while on the same mission, had very different ideas over how to achieve it. Ben-Gurion saw that the British hadn't yet created a Jewish fighting force, and it was also a month before the election that would bring Franklin Roosevelt a third term in the White House. So Ben-Gurion didn't want to make a huge public spectacle of raising a Jewish army, preferring to work more behind the scenes with key Zionist leaders. Jabotinsky, on the other hand, always the maximalist, went big and loud. He reasoned that American public opinion could convince the British to allow the Jews to fight, so he was not shy about making his views known. On August 4th, 1940, while visiting a Zionist youth camp up in the Catskills, 
Jabotinsky suffered a massive heart attack and died. The great visionary leader joined the Zionist movement after witnessing the violent pogroms of Tsarist Russia, determined to make Jewish self-defense a foundational principle of the future Jewish state. His right-wing brand of nationalism inspired generations of young Jews, led to the creation of the Haganah and the Irgun, and then the Israeli army. Through his revisionist Zionist tree branch, he created a political and ideological movement that is still very much alive and powerful in Israel today. He was an advocate for liberal democracy and civil and equal rights for minorities within the Jewish majority state. But most of all, he was an advocate for Jewish sovereignty of the self, for the idea of a homeland in which the Jews would determine their own fate. We do not have to apologize for anything, he said. We are a people as all other peoples. We do not have any intentions to be better than the rest. In accordance with his will, he wished to be buried outside Palestine until such time as a Jewish state with a Jewish government could bring his remains there. He was buried on Long Island in the same Jewish cemetery where my grandfather and great-grandparents are buried. And there he lay for more than 20 years. Ben-Gurion, never one to let a good grudge go to waste, refused to transfer Jabotinsky's remains. It wasn't until the 1960s when Ben-Gurion was no longer prime minister that Israel had him buried in Jerusalem just a few yards away from the only Zionist leader more influential than him, Theodore Herzl. Now, despite Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky's unsuccessful trip to the United States, there was some movement in Britain to allow the Jews to fight. Much of the government leaders and the top military brass were against it. But the Zionists did have one big-time ally in the British government, someone who time and again in the last few decades had made clear his support for Zionism and his respect for the Jews as a people and a fighting force. And in 1940, he became the Prime Minister. I'm talking about Winston Churchill. I'll be talking about him and name-dropping some iconic Israeli heroes in the next episode. Thanks for listening. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender.